Alrighty, so um, this is the famous feeding of the 5,000 story. This is the only one of Jesus' miracles that appears in all four Gospels. So this is a really significant miracle in the life of Jesus. And um, I want to just walk through this story uh, together with us. And, and tonight, I actually want to make this as interactive as possible. I want to uh, not just uh, have this be a monologue. I actually want to create some dialogue here. So I'm going to be needing a little bit of input from, from the audience. So, so speak up. You know, don't, uh, don't leave me hanging up here all, all by myself, stuck in silence. So um, first off, I just want to ask this question. Does anyone know what immediately um, comes before this story in the life of the disciples. So like, what have the disciples been doing immediately before this particular story happens? Anyone know? Luke? Um, well, what, they, what I remember is Jesus, what's his, were they not, Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Right before this, Jesus has just sent out the 12 disciples to go on their inaugural mission trip. And so they've gone out without Jesus. They've watched Jesus do miracles. They've watched Jesus preach the gospel. And now Jesus says, it's your turn to do this. That's what discipleship is. And so they've just come back from that. That's why at the very beginning of this story, uh, it says that the, the apostles gathered around Jesus. They reported to him all that they had done and taught. This is verse 30. Uh, then because so many people were coming and going, even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a place and get some rest. So let me ask you a question. If you were to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples, um, how, do you, how do you think they're probably feeling at the beginning of the story right after having come back from this mission trip? Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, that's going to be a theme in the story a little later on. I love the first word you mentioned as well, that they're, they're probably exhausted. Um, anyone, okay, raise your hand if you've been on a mission trip before. Raise your hand if you've been exhausted at the end of that mission trip. <laughs> that's probably everybody <laughs> who's been on a mission trip before. Uh, okay, what else? What else do you think they're probably thinking and, and feeling? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys all heard that, but just that they're excited to kind of debrief with Jesus. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, so they're kind of happy and satisfied with how things have gone, maybe? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, as I was thinking about this, um, what came to mind as I was trying to step into the disciples' mindset, there were four E's. You know, I didn't even try to make this, I didn't try really hard to make this an alliteration. It just kind of worked. It just worked out that way. Pretty cool. But I was thinking to myself, you know, first of all, they're probably exhausted. Um, They know that they need rest. They're pretty tired. Um, There's probably some excitement, not just about the fact that they've seen God work over the course of their mission trip, but I think they're excited that they get to rest now. 
Um, and then there might even be a little bit of an entitlement mentality that, well, I actually, I deserve some rest because I've just been out scraping my knees and, and getting myself all bloodied for the sake of the kingdom. And so I deserve this rest. And then I think there's probably also some eagerness to get Jesus all to themselves, you know, like so often Jesus is devoting his time and attention to other people. They're probably really excited um, to come back and get to talk with him, to debrief with him about how their trip went. And so just think about how much joy they would have had as Jesus tells them, you know, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's go on a little miniature retreat so that you guys can get some so that we can spend some quality time together. So that, that might be what, what their headspace was. But, but as you read on in the story, what you realize is, is that the retreat that they're hoping for never actually happens. And the reason for this is that Jesus allows himself to be interrupted by all these crowds. So in verses 33 and 34, um, you find out that a lot of people recognize Jesus and his disciples. And so they run to him from all these other towns. They mob him, basically. And Jesus has compassion on them. He looks out on them. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. And so he kind of stops what he had planned on doing, um, and he allows himself to be interrupted so that he can teach the crowds. And so now, imagine what the disciples are feeling. Any, any ideas? Like, what do you think the disciples are feeling at this particular point in the story? Upset? Okay, why, why, why upset? Yeah, yeah, like maybe a little bit miffed that, like, man, Jesus, what about us? What about us? Yeah. Isaac, did you have your hand raised over there? Yeah, okay, okay, they're irritated. They didn't get the rest that they wanted. Yeah. What else? You know, camp people, you guys can participate too. You guys are like full members of Thrive, whether you know it or not. Just, just FYI. Overwhelmed. Hmm. That's a good word. Why? Why overwhelmed? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. That's yeah. That's a really good insight. That they're probably already overwhelmed by the amount of ministry they've just done. And now Jesus says, oh, hey, look, 5,000 more people that we can minister to. And they're probably thinking, I just don't, I don't have the strength or the energy to do this. Overwhelmed, yeah. And then, um, you know, to make matters worse, Jesus kind of directly commands them um, to go minister to these 5,000 people. So they're hungry. And what does Jesus say? He says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> And I just kind of imagine Jesus being a little cheeky there, you know, because I'm sure he knows what's going on in the disciples' minds. He's like, ah, watch this. You give them something to eat. So what I want to do is, is I want to look at this story now that we've kind of gone through it, you know, because obviously um, the story ends with, uh, with a miracle. But I want to look back at um, what happens before the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place um, by looking at the story sort of in a little bit more detail under three movements. Um, so there's sort of a, a progression in the story that moves from starvation through surrender to satisfaction. So starvation, surrender, satisfaction. Um, this time, uh, three S's there. How about that? Um, that one I did have to work a little bit to, you know, make work. So, okay, first of all, um, what I want to point out is that 
there's an interesting little detail that you might have missed at the beginning of the story about the disciples. So if you go back to verse 31, one of the things that you find out is that it's not just the crowds who are hungry, it's actually the disciples themselves. So it says in verse 31 that because so many people were coming and going, they, this is the disciples, they did not even have a chance to eat. So they're so busy ministering to other people alongside Jesus that the disciples themselves are starving. So they're also um, kind of having their stomachs growling. And so that's one of the reasons I think that they're excited to go on this little retreat. They're thinking not just, oh, we get to rest, we get to, we get to eat. <laughs> but then, what, what, you know, as we've seen, like the retreat gets interrupted, um, and Jesus takes their food away. So if you go to the parallel account of this in Matthew's gospel, uh, this is Matthew 14, verse 18. Jesus uh, has, has had the disciples go and see, like, is there any food out there at all? They find that there's a young boy that's got a couple of loaves, a couple of fish. Um, and then Jesus says, I want you to give that food to me. Uh, it says in Matthew, I think he says, yeah, bring, bring them here to me. So, so if you're one of the disciples, again, just sort of stepping into their, their mindset, you're probably thinking, man, I'm pretty miffed about this, Jesus. Like, I am starving. I am hungry. I've been putting in all this ministry work, and <laughs> there goes my dinner, you know. Like, if you're one of the disciples, you're probably feeling questions like this. You're thinking, man, Jesus, do you really care about me after all? Um, do you really provide for my needs? Do you even care about, about what I'm experiencing and what I'm suffering right now. Um, or maybe another question is, Jesus, are you a God who really satisfies? Because right now my stomach is growling. So this, this question is kind of raising, or this, this story, sorry, is raising um, some pretty deep questions that connect up to the character of who Jesus is. Is Jesus a God um, who seeks our satisfaction? Is he a God who provides for our needs? Is he a God who actually cares about our needs? These are some of the things I think the disciples um, are thinking. And, and, and it would have been so easy, I think, for them in their situation um, to adopt what you might call like a scarcity mentality. You know, they might be thinking that, man, here I am following Jesus, and all that following Jesus has gotten me is starvation, not satisfaction. All it's gotten me is exhaustion rather than rest. All it's gotten me is death rather than resurrection. And calling me, it feels like Jesus wants to crush me. You know, raise your hand if you've ever felt like discipleship to Jesus can sometimes feel that way. I see some shy hands. Um, I'll, be a, I'll be a bold hand and say that, that some, uh, that's been my experience sometimes. And so what I want to notice in this story is how Jesus responds. Um, if you look at sort of the next little movement in the story, it moves from the theme of starvation actually through to the theme of surrender. Because um, it's only when the disciples are actually required by Jesus to surrender the little bit that they do have that they actually get to see one of the miracles of Jesus. Um, so, so that's what happens in the story. Jesus says, like, go see you know, what food is out there, and then I want you to give that food to me. I want you to give it up. I want you to surrender it. The disciples are probably thinking, Jesus, like, what good is it going to do? You know, this is not nearly enough to feed 5,000 people plus women and children. And yet Jesus says, I want you to give me what you have. 
you know, at this point of the, of the story, you know, if I'm one of the disciples, I might be kind of thinking back to the story of Moses when God calls Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to be the deliverer to f- deliver the Israelites out of slavery. And, and Moses says to himself, like, I'm not the right guy for that. Like, I'm a, I'm a stutterer. I'm a mutterer. And God says, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, well, it's a staff. And God says, I'm going to use what you've got in your hand to be my instrument to demonstrate my power before Pharaoh. And that's the staff that Moses uses to do all of his miracles. And so Jesus says to the disciples, basically, like, well, what, what, what do you have? You know, what, what's in your hand? And they say, well, we've got five loaves of bread. We've got a couple of fish. Um, they, they're thinking to themselves, this, is, this isn't enough. But Jesus says, I want you to trust me enough to give me what you have and even to give me your weakness. And they do. The point that, that, that I want to make from this that I think just kind of connects um, to what it looks like for us to be disciples of Jesus today is that the disciples are kind of caught between the, the war of what the Bible calls the war between flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. Um, so for example... Uh, there, are, there are a number of places, like in the book of Romans, for example, that talk about how, like, we have been given a new nature in Christ. We live by the Spirit. At the same time, we also still wrestle with um, sort of a, 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 an old nature that sometimes tries to compete and be at war with the new life in the Spirit that God has given us. So there's this war between flesh and spirit. And so on the one hand, like the disciples are probably thinking these thoughts about like, Jesus, you know, you just are, are trying to make my life miserable by not giving me rest, by not giving me food, by forcing me to go serve all of these people. But on the other hand, they also know that, well, like Jesus has been teaching us that the way of discipleship actually looks like not living for myself and actually walking in a posture of surrender, that sort of life in the spirit. And I just want to, I want to like use this story to compare the two different lifestyles of, of what it looks like to walk in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. So if you were to sort of summarize what those two different ways of life look like, you could put it like this, that to walk according to the flesh is to say that my life belongs to me. My life is mine. And so therefore, I'm going to live for my pleasures, and I also have to be in control. I have to be in control of my life of my circumstances, that's life in the flesh. But then there's life in the spirit, which is the opposite. Life in the spirit is where we say, like, my life is not my own. I do not belong to myself. And so that means that I'm going to live for what pleases Christ, which actually is what pleases me, because Jesus has given me his desires so that what pleases him is actually what pleases me. What gives him joy is what gives me joy. And maybe most importantly, I actually can breathe a sigh of relief that I am not in control of my life because someone far more trustworthy is at the helm of my life and is going to do a better job controlling my life than I will. So that's sort of a contrast between these two ways of life. But what I want to um, also expose is that there's a different view of God underlying each one of these. So this is the next slide. So what happens if you're living according to the flesh? What, is, what are you believing about God in that way of life? I would call it uh, an, a view of God that's rooted in a scarcity mentality. And this is maybe what the disciples were thinking, that Jesus is, is essentially, he's, 
he, he doesn't have my best interests in mind. Following him is just another way to make me suffer. Um, and uh, here, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just read this. So scarcity mentality. God is out to get me. When I imagine what it would be like to follow him, I imagine misery and hardship because deep down, I believe God's heart cannot be trusted. This is why I have to be in control. I'm afraid of what might happen if I give God control of my life. So it's not interesting. It actually goes back to a lack of trust in God's heart that he's good. It's been said that all of our problems in life come from our lack of belief in the goodness of God. That's a scarcity mentality. And that is what is behind life in the flesh. But what about life in the spirit? I would call this the opposite. This is an abundance mentality. That in the cross of Christ, I become convinced that God loves me more than I even love myself. So knowing that he desires my joy more than I do, I'd rather have him be in control of my life because I know he'll do a better job of running my life than I will. Though I wrestle with why he at times allows me to experience pain and suffering, my life is anchored in a fundamental truth that God's heart for me is good and therefore I can trust him. Let me just give you one more. And this is sort of the fruit that comes out of um, these two different lifestyles. Life in the flesh results in you actually becoming a slave. And you become a slave to your own desires. This is because when you're living according to the desires of the flesh, you're going to be pursuing things uh, such as money, pleasure, freedom. And you might think that those things are serving you. That if I just get a bunch of money, then that money's going to serve me so that I can just live however I want. But the reality is, is that if you actually get what you want, that thing is going to ultimately let you down. That's one possibility. Or if you don't get what you want, it'll lead to despair because you're going to feel like you're not actually living a full life because the very thing you thought was going to satisfy you, you can't actually get. Or, you know, here's another example. One of the biggest idols in our culture is probably the idol of freedom. The idol that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The idol that says, whatever is most convenient for me, whatever kind of allows me the most freedom to choose what I want to do, to be who I want to be, to express my identity the way I want to express it, that in our culture is what the good life is. But do you realize that that, that idol is ultimately going to crush you? Because if you're totally free, free of obligations, <laughs> then that means that you're, you're, you're really kind of an island. You know, like life in community, life with other people puts obligations on you. You know, like if you're married, then that means that you're not your own. You actually have an obligation to love and serve your spouse. Even if you're, you know, just living with other Christians, like you're called to love and to serve them. And so if you're living just for freedom, if you have unlimited freedom in your life, you might have unlimited freedom, but you know what you don't have? You don't have meaning, and you don't have community. You know, this is why it's so crazy and ironic that, like, in our culture today, we have access to so much freedom. You can buy what you want with a click of the mouse on Amazon. You know, you can go where you want. You know, we can, um, you know, before COVID. <laughs> you know, if you're an American, you probably had the purchasing power to hop on a plane and go most any place in the world. You know, we have freedom of, of what we buy, consumers, and we have freedom of what we do. We have freedom of, of like, the, the kind of knowledge we can get from the internet. But meanwhile, anxiety 
is on the rise. Depression is skyrocketing. There's been a total breakdown of the things in life that give life meaning because we're no longer living in community. So ultimately, if you are living according to the flesh, whether you get what you're seeking or you don't, it's going to destroy you. You're going to be a slave to your fleshly desires. But then there's life in the spirit. Life in the spirit is what ultimately leads to deep satisfaction. And it's a deep satisfaction that's not tied to external circumstances. That's because like, when you live according to the spirit, what happens is, is that the fruit of the spirit begins to show up in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I just want you to imagine like, what would your life be like if all the time like, that was what you were experiencing. Like, if all the time you felt a sense of God's love. All the time you felt a sense of God's joy. All the time you felt a sense of God's peace. The circumstances around you would get to you a whole lot less because even though there might be chaos outside of you, inside of you is the Spirit of God that is bearing all of that fruit. And so that's why, if you were to kind of just make a simple little picture of this, there's life in the flesh, which leads to the works of the flesh, which leads to death. But then there's life in the Spirit on the other side, which leads to the fruit of the Spirit, which leads to life. And those are the two ways in which we can live. And so going back to the disciples, the way of the world, the way of the flesh, is to hoard and to control. And to say, I have to be the one at the helm. I have to be the one in in control. I have to be the one to set the agenda. Jesus, send all these people away so that I can have my plans, you know, my plans of having a little R&R retreat with you. You know, Jesus, send the people away to, do, to go get food so that I don't have to worry and I don't have to minister to them. And what Jesus does is he actually challenges them to wage war against living according to the flesh in order to surrender their, their control over to him so that they can see God move. And that's exactly what happens as they lay down the control, as they refuse to kind of hoard the little bits of, of, of bread and fish that they have, Jesus takes those things and he multiplies them and brings lasting, deep satisfaction. And the crazy thing about this is that if you think about it, like this is sort of just a picture of, of what the shape of the gospel is all about. Jesus calls us to die in order to live. He says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to experience satisfaction, you have to surrender. And what's so interesting to me is that at the very end of this story, do you notice that there's a little interesting detail there? It says that the disciples pick up 12 baskets of food left over. And it goes to show that Jesus has not forgotten them and that he provides each one of them enough food for all of them to be satisfied. Kind of interesting to me, actually, that it's 12 baskets rather than 13 because that means that apparently Jesus didn't save one for himself. Kind of interesting. So um, I just want to conclude tonight um, by... Uh, conclude, conclude in this way. Um, the, the end of the story is sort of a demonstration of Jesus' power to satisfy. Um, he takes what, what the, the little the disciples have, um, he multiplies it miraculously, and every single person in the crowd, including the disciples, go away filled. Um, when I think about 
the power that Jesus has to satisfy. Um, one of the stories that uh, just comes to mind for me is the story of, of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Maybe some of you have sung that before. And there's a really interesting backstory to that hymn. The guy who wrote that hymn was a guy named Horatio Spafford. And this was, I think, back in you know, 1800s or something. And so uh, this is back when people could only get across uh, to, to go to Europe by, by ship. And so he and his family were going on a trip, and they were going over to Europe. Um, and just because of some, some, some things going on, he had to actually come later. So he sent um, his wife and I think his five daughters across first, and they, they, they took a ship across, and he was going to join them later on a different ship. Well, the ship that his whole family was on sank. His five daughters drowned, and only his wife was saved. She makes it on another ship to England, and he sends a telegram back um, to her husband and says, saved alone. And he realizes that his whole family has been lost except for his wife. And so as he's on the ship, and he's, as, as his ship um, passes over the place where um, the other ship had sunk, where his daughters had drowned, um, as he's there, um, he is inspired to write the words of the hymn of this song, which says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so the world says that satisfaction is defined by, by buzz. Like it's just whatever gives you a buzz. Christian satisfaction is designed by peace and by paradox. That you can have peace and you can actually kind of have it paradoxically. Even in circumstances that are, are full of pain and full of suffering, Jesus says there can still be a peace and a satisfaction that the world can't explain. And so that's the kind of satisfaction that Jesus gives. I think it's sort of a, a, what the, the miracle points to is he satisfies the whole, the whole crowd, gives them food to eat. But then lastly, I just want to ask this question. Um, what do you do um, if Jesus is someone that you know is kind of supposed to satisfy you, but you just kind of are honest with yourself and say, well, um, he doesn't. You know, like I find it really hard to kind of find my joy, find my satisfaction in Jesus. What do I do? You know, how do I actually kind of shift my desires so that I can live not in the flesh, but live in the spirit? So that I actually can take my hands off of my life and not be in control and give control to Jesus. And this, this story itself actually kind of points us to what the answer is. Because a little bit later on, um, Jesus would be with his disciples. They would be celebrating the Last Supper. And, and in that particular moment, Jesus um, grabbed a loaf of bread. And he broke the bread, and he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. He takes the, the, the wine, he says, this, this wine is the blood of the new covenant, my blood poured out for you. And so if you're one of the disciples, and you're sitting around the Passover dinner with Jesus, and you see him take the broken bread, you, know, you might have thought back to this miracle, where Jesus multiplies the bread. And there might have been like a light bulb that goes off for you, where you begin to, begin to realize that, oh my goodness, Jesus multiplied the bread, not just so that he could like fill our stomachs, but so that he could point us to the fact that he is the broken bread. He is the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies. And it's when we look at the broken body of Jesus on the cross, and when we see what he did there, and when we see the love that he poured out on us there, that we can trust God's heart. And we can trust that God's heart is good. That is, that, that is how you can move from living life according to the flesh to living life according to the spirit. 
It's by looking at who Jesus is and what he has done for us that our hearts can ultimately be convinced that he really, truly loves us. Jesus is the God who satisfies. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who satisfies, that you're a God who gives us not scarcity, but abundance. Help us to trust your heart. Help us to trust your good. Help us to wage war against the desires of the flesh to live according to the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.